Oh, it was super rad. Right before this drunk chick spilled wine all over my shoes. I was ruminating on community right before that happened. <laughs> We've all been there. We know what that's like. I'm ruminating on community and some drunk chick pours wine all over my shoes. Hey everybody, welcome to 2015. I'm your host, Alex Hellman. This is the Coworking Weekly Show, episode number seven. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a show where you get to be a fly on the wall for some very candid conversations between people with lots of different community building expertise, ranging from community management in a co-working space to building massive online learning communities. My goal through all of these conversations is to help you learn how my guests and I connect the dots, solve problems, and understand the communities that are all around us. We're kicking off the first show of the year with the return of The Stack, which is a style of episode debuted back in episode number three, if you want to go give it a listen. That also means that today I'm going to be joined again by learning community researcher, Indie Hall member, and my dear friend, Vanessa Generelli. Like we did in the first episode where we did the stack, Vanessa and I are going to navigate our way through a stack of three topics that we've chosen ahead of time. But these topics aren't related in any obvious way. And of course, since this is the Coworking Weekly Show, part of our goal is to tie those topics back into practical examples in coworking and community building. As always, we find ourselves in some unexpected places. This week, that includes tentacles and the Philadelphia mummers. Yeah, that's right. Let's get to the stack. What do you? Those of you who are listening can't see what I see right now, but Vanessa's doing the like the little twinkly finger thing from Wayne's World in uh-huh. in my monitor, and it's yeah, um, but in like a super creepy octopus way. <laughs> well, P2P is a distributed team, right? So we're like I spend half my life on Google Hangouts with ten people, and most of the time you're muted, so you can't. In and having Google Hangouts is like presenting to an entire crowd of mimes, you know, because everyone else is muted. So in order to show how pleased I am about something, I often give like creepy spirit fingers, which are like twinkling your hands, but also in like a slow mo a little bit. Like I have octopus tentacles, and that's what I was just doing to Alex. So that's how we're going to open our show. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing this morning, Vanessa? <laughs> I don't under I don't know what. Creepy octopus finger. Is that a good gesticulation? Is that good for me? Is it good for you? It's going to be good for you. Is it good for our listeners? I, uh, I mean, tentacles are never bad. So. <laughs> All right. I can, I can work with that. I can work with that. So our fractals, fractals and tentacles. Fractals and tentacles will be the title of today's episode. And that's true. So um, welcome back to the Corkin Weekly Show we're doing on the stack again, and perhaps in its truest form because we did our first stack conversation back in November. People really loved it. Um, we got some great feedback on it. People really enjoyed sort of a more in-depth exploration of some of these things. And it's not just the, you know, tactical, here's how you do it, a little bit more um, mindset exploration, I suppose. Uh, and then December hit, holidays, uh, I was offline for most of, of December. What did you get up to in the holidays? Oh, geez. I, I worked with my little bits. 
You're That's little... basically what I did. I just <laughs> do, you want, out... do you want to explain what that means? <laughs> <laughs> uh, little Bits is a playful uh, electronics group, and we're working on some community building and stuff for them. But that meant that I was putting together these circuits. I was bitifying my household. Um, putting little... together circuits everywhere. Little Bits are, it's sort of like, Arduino-y electronics kits, except instead of having to pull out a soldering kit, they actually like stick together with magnets, right? Magnets. Yeah, so it's like so it's like Arduino meets Lego in a way. Totally. That's really uh-huh. really cool. Um, so that was you 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 little bitted your way through the holidays. A little bit of my way through the holidays. Um, for a while, I had a doorbell that would play "Don't Stop Believing." Um, How long did it take before that got annoying? <laughs> our mail person, our mail carrier, was like, uh, uh, uh. Um, so I, I went to the Mummers Parade for New Year's Day. Do you know that? Do you know that I've never done the Mummers Parade? What? I've watched it on television, but I've never actually. I go away for New Year's, so I never in Philadelphia when Two Street rains down with sequins and beer spray. Beer spray. <laughs> Um, how am would you am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> how would you describe the? Well, you've never been, so you. So here's so the best description I can give of the Mummers actually may have been from uh, a tour guide when I was in New Orleans for New Year's, and when we got on a tour bus and mentioned we're from Philadelphia, the first thing the tour guide said, he said, "The Mummers," and I feel like the the folks in New Orleans who know New Orleans Mardi Gras, like the true historical Mardi Gras party culture, not the girls gone wild crap, mm-hmm. but the real celebration are perhaps the only people in the world who truly understand where the mummers are are coming from spiritually, <laughs> whatever that okay, means. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Spiritually, yes, but, but let's back up and say what it is, which okay. is this so, collection of plumbers and pipe fitters, Irish Italian plumbers and pipe fitters basically. This is a blue this is what happens when blue collar Philadelphia. Yeah. Hit, traditionally and mm-hmm. and even tr- today um, puts on um, feathered co- and sequin-covered costumes. They cross-dress. They cross-dress. They play string instruments. There's a string band performances, and they're truly talented musical mm-hmm. performers, and they dance. And it's like these dancing peacock uh, uh, performances from the people that I, I think you would perhaps least likely expect it from. It's a massive party. Um, there's a, there's some dark underbelliness to it mm-hmm. as well, um, and it's, it's it can have a ba- it can have a bad rap and and uh, heartily earned bad rap as well. But it's one of those things that nobody in the world has but Philadelphia. But Philadelphia, and no one knows about it really. I mean, apart from these New Orleans party like scholars that you met, um, <laughs> like the uh, I think they would appreciate being called that too. <laughs> Well, uh, I brought a friend of mine down, and he was just—he was shocked at what a big deal it was because the parade happens at like the crack of dawn, and then everyone goes down to Two Street, um, which is the- which is Second Street, by the way. Second, For yeah, one day street. out of the year, Second it's- Street in South Philly is called Two Street by everybody. Everybody, and uh, and it's just float after float after float of cross-dressing blue-collar dudes, and basically like no open container laws across the city of Philadelphia, which I really appreciated for you know a community podcast here. This is this is I was not allowed into any of the bars because I had a backpack, 
And uh, and I was like, what's the story with the backpack? And the bouncers were like, okay, so we want you to buy beer in the bar. And so we don't want you to bring it in. But the thing is, this is Philly. I don't want to check your backpack. I want you to have anything in your backpack that you want. So we just don't have people on the bars with backpacks. Um, <laughs> That's genius. That's yeah, genius. Yeah, yeah. I love um, it. And... Um, and yeah, it was uh, it was really it was really fantastic, and and wanna we were all hung over the New Year's Day and watching the parade on TV before we went down there, and there were all these like anti Comcast. There's this one brigade. They were all like they had these anti Comcast signs, and it was all about bandwidth, and we were really confused. And the the reporter went up to them afterwards and said, "Can you talk a little bit about your dance, about your performance?" And they were like, "Well, um, we really care about net neutrality." And I was like, net neutrality mummers! Holy but- fucking shit! So awesome! <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> so that's a good way to kick off 2015, is uh, <laughs> a net neutrality dance. <laughs> <laughs> Things that happen once and perhaps will never happen again. Uh, so today, on the stack, what do we have? We've got, uh, we've got fucking fractals fractals what do they mean what are they how are they relevant to communities uh why are we talking about fractals and we'll get into that in a minute we are talking about number two adulthood what it means to be an adult uh maybe a a continuum of adultness and the number three trust like vanessa was talking about the backpack in bar like <laughs> really the, truly one of them the, that's so subtle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's such a subtle way of saying i want to be able to trust you so i'm removing the inability to trust yeah. you that's yeah. truly magic i want everybody to think about that for a second mm-hmm. right and i think that's something we can all learn from oh we're super red right before this drunk chick spilled wine all over my shoes i was ruminating on community right before that happened <laughs> we've all been there we know what that's like <laughs> I'm ruminating on community, and some drunk chick pours wine all over my shoes. So let's start with fractals, shall we? So uh, this phrase, uh, not just a phrase, I think uh, more of an exclamation of sorts, fucking fractals. Uh, I remember in many of our stack conversations of past, uh, it would be a, I don't know, sort of... uh, a thing we would shout would be in a conversation, and it was basically a way of saying that thing again. Mm-hmm. You know, that thing being a pattern, uh, an example. It's like no matter what topic or subject we were talking about, it's like there's that damn thing again. And rather than just say that, we said fucking fractals mm-hmm. with our fists being shook in the air. Um, and so, Vanessa, why don't you explain what a fractal is? Uh, fractals are, uh, basically they're patterns. They're patterns that occur in nature where things look like chaos, but they actually have organization in them. Uh, and they're mathematical formulae. Uh, but you probably know them as the blacklight posters that you saw in fucking Spencer's gifts when you were 12. Um, and they, they look really cool. Uh, and they're super trippy. Um, but, uh, yeah, Alex, you came up with that phrase, I think. And it was, uh when I was traveling around the world and I would see something that related to a previous conversation that we had, I would exclaim fucking fractals on Twitter. Um, and put, I would put some topic on the stack that we were supposed to talk about later. That was sort of a, a, um, a linguistic 
bat signal. <laughs> Something happened in the world that we need to talk about. So it was sort of like a, it was sort of like a, uh, almost like a, like when you dog tag a page in a book, uh, or dog earring, um, reality in that moment saying the fractal occurred again. Um, and these are things that happen in nature, right? And we've got, you know, I think nature, we talked about this last time, nature's smarter than us. Nature does things, uh, and has been doing things for a lot longer. And so, I don't know. I think about fractals also in terms of like zoom level, right? Because a lot of the examples of fractals in nature are things like, you know, crystal structures. Um, and there's a really cool picture on Reddit I saw recently of a, um, a coastline, I believe, of one of the deserts in Africa. So basically where the desert hits the sea and sort of where the ocean was eroding the, the desert right? Um, in this very consistent, repetitive pattern. And the cool thing is, is you can find that same location using satellite photos instead of just an aerial photo and realize that the exact same pattern and shape is visible at multiple levels of distance from the Earth's surface. So naturally occurring patterns at the detailed level, right? When you can like get it right, you could be standing in it and see it. And also like at the biggest horizon possible. And this happens in our communities all the time. Yeah, and, and something that I also wanted to add, like we, we definitely, when we see these patterns happening and they sort of hit us over the head and we're like, ah, that's that lesson over again. Um, but I, they can also inhibit us too. As a researcher, a lot of our cognitive biases, you know, the availability heuristic, the hindsight bias, that's because we've come to rely on our patterns. Um, yeah, patterns- they're, they're like mental shortcuts, right? They're like how we... Yeah how we store and process and, and make future decisions smarter and better is because we are tr- like, we're trained to, or I guess evolved, that is a better way to say it, to notice patterns because it's just more efficient and to store patterns because it's more efficient. It's our mental wallpaper, right? Um, it's <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? Well, it, it's, uh, it's the pattern that we see, um, you know, what we fill in words, right? We, we sort word order in our head. Um, the it's, we, we fit things into a, a system because it's the easiest way for our mind to work. Um, and and uh, it's another, I mean, my favorite, I have a lot of favorite cognitive biases. Um. <laughs> There's, that's something worth unpacking. <laughs> I have a lot of favorite uh, cognitive biases. Um, one is the fundamental attribution error, which means that uh, you assume that people think like you do. And then the uh, another, which I've been exploring a lot, is assigning purpose to patterns. You know, sometimes our minds, we look for purpose behind something. In evolution, we, we, we sometimes think about evolution as something that, you know, the human race won out. But that's not actually what happened, this random mess where a, a, certain, a certain constellation of variables just happened to rise it's not there's no purpose behind it so patterns good fractals awesome need to be need to be aware of when they hurt us too it's true it's true well and you know the i like looking at fractals as a tool that's probably the place where i use the most um and that is like probably one of the best examples i can come up with related to indie hall is in sort of how we tumble um, so like a big core to our tumbling practice. And if wait, you're, wait, wait, wait. what's tumbling? 
So tumbling for the uninitiated, um, you can go back on to my blog, dangerouslyawesome.com, and actually right on the homepage, there is an, a link to an article that says, uh, you know, stop community managing, start tumbling instead. Tumbling is a basically our way of bringing people together, using, honestly, fractal patterns in a lot of ways. It's how do you... Uh, ask questions, mm-hmm. discover patterns, and make it easier for people to find out about each other. This, the secret there being, have them do the discovery. How do you facilitate them discovering each other rather than you being the one who's constantly sort of smashing people together and hoping for the best? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot more about tumbling, but I think the crux of what I what is important to know today is it is really hinged on connecting people who would not otherwise connect on their own. Right. There's a re- good reason for them to be connected, but there's some some distinction that they believe, and it could simply be that there's not. They don't know that it would be worth it to connect with each other. So we do this on an individual level at Indie Hall. Everything from how we we've designed the work, um, the actual desk layout to make it more likely for people to sit next to strangers. But having some of the strangers you sit next to be sort of the people that are there on a regular basis, they're going to be more curious who's sitting near me today, reach out, introduce themselves, that sort of thing. But the fractal version of this that I think people don't always think about is when you're thinking about like emergent subcommunities. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting thing too, right? So as a community grows, and it doesn't need to be big for this to happen, it will start to naturally yeah. subdivide right. um, based on interests or focuses or an active um an active project or thing they're participating in this is normal and natural and good it's hard sort of how communities stay healthy and strong the problem where it turns into a problem is when the subdivisions become isolated yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Well, that's that's a difference between sort of a sub-community and a clique, in my mind, right. is is that sub-group, is that new emergent group continuing to be aware of the larger community it's a part of and aware of the other sort of peer sub-communities? So this is fractal level number one, is where you go from helping individuals be more aware of each other and therefore increasing the possibility of them getting to know each other, build relationships, trust, which leads to all the things that we want, collaboration, sharing knowledge, and doing great things together. That works with sub-communities too. They're just as, they're just as sticky in terms of like people's natural habits mm-hmm. when they're not folks who, I mean, even you and I, I think, have these habits built into us too. Given, you know, a lack of intent... I'll find a quiet place to sit where I'm right. not going to be bothered right. versus putting myself in a place where, hey, anything can happen. So you've got to sort of give people an environment where the thing that they want is likely to happen, even when they make the least optimal choices. You can do the same thing for subcommunities. So when we notice subcommunities emerging, we say, okay, who are the other subcommunities that they are, you know, that they can be near that they can sort of do their things near and what can we do to help them continually be more aware of each other even if it's something as simple as making sure that like um like a a meetup group doesn't hold its meetup on in an isolated 
event space, right? Oh, yes, and other people can come in and like, and you can overhear it, and you sort of have a, a sense of being involved, even right. if you're not really involved. Okay, right. So like we we put a, we put a lot of things inside of our night owls yeah. event because it's a place where people are going to be already going to be gathering. It allows for a sort of same serendipitous collisions that happen with individuals to happen with subcommunities. Yeah, I mean, Alex, this is like one of our favorite topics, and fucking fractal subcommunities comes up all the time, and 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 subcommunities like a P two P U. I say that we like to accelerate that intimacy. Like that intimacy is really good for learning. We know that people learn things better when they're more vulnerable and they share things with each other, but not in a creepy way. Alex is giving me this look that's like. Are you, are you going to be creepy? That's not what uh, the look was. Actually, okay. you said accelerated intimacy, and I don't yeah. think I've ever heard you say that before. I don't think I've heard that before. The The phrasing that I, I'm familiar with is accelerated serendipity, and that's something that's always been so squishy, and I've seen be, its squishiness lead to some weird manipulations and, and misunderstandings, and not that I think intimacy is less prone to that, but I think accelerated intimacy is a better more, maybe a, not better, a more accurate mm. version of what I've always thought of when I thought of accelerated serendipity. It was how do I make it easier and more likely for people to get close to one another? Yeah. And because then, uh, yeah. the right. result of that, the outcome of that, is what we know as serendipity. That feeling of, mm-hmm. that sort of magical feeling of mm-hmm. how could, else could that have possibly happened? You, uh, Alex is a delicious... Alex is a delicious chef of tasty choice architecture um <laughs> that's i'm erasing all of my biography that's going to be my twitter my twitter bio after today i'm not making that up what you just said uh, i might i will re-listen to this and that will be my twitter bio moving forward proceed well, proceed uh, so intimacy intimacy and sub-communities uh so we know it's good for learning uh, the p2p research shows that uh it's groups of 30 to 40 and after that um folks tend to split off into smaller groups and that's okay and that's good and we can model that subcommunity uh behavior a bit but it's really most powerful when it's emergent like alex said um the like we we try to create small groups in our in our big learning courses and the one that is the most was the most powerful was from one of the learners, and they suggested that one group should be girls just want to have fun, and it's the most active group by far. And like, what a huge tent, right? The girls just want to have fun. Who doesn't? Um, when you say then, when you say big, how big are we talking about? Like two hundred people. Okay, I mean, so two hundred people, and then you want to break that into smaller groups of. 30, 40 or less. Oh, no, no, no. I meant, like, uh, for our, our larger courses, that's 7,000 people. Oh, um, okay. People, people break into... The, the Girls Just Want to Have Fun group was 200 people full of girls who identified as wanting to have, have fun. Wow. Um, and I... Uh, oh, what, there was something else I wanted to say about... Oh, cross-pollination amongst those sub-communities. Um, something that we're working on for the Little Bits... Uh, the Little Bits community, we're working on uh, something called Invent invent anything for uh for folks who are running face-to-face meetups using little bits is that there are six different tents it's like a we're going to do a synth tent we're going to do an art and sculpture tent we're going to do an internet of things tent and those are all going to be specific to that discipline alex but stay with me i'm still with you once a week everybody from all the tents are getting together to work on one project so everybody from all the tents are getting together to de- design a learning activity. Everyone from all the tents are getting together to decide what their outreach uh, method is going to be for their event. 
So totally agree with you that subcommunities awesome. We try to accelerate them, but not in a creepy way. Um, but cross-pollination, we're working with some solutions to help those folks cross-pollinate. Right. Wondering, I was just wondering if you were, if you had come up with solutions to help folks cross-pollinate and bring them back. Well, I think one of the things to remember, and what you said in a non-creepy way, I just sort of want to like put a, a, a sheen on that and say a non-creepy way means a, a non-forceful way, right? Mm-hmm. You're not making them do it. You can't yeah. make people do these things. It's more how do you guide them to make choices and yeah, how do you yeah. help them make choices that are going to be in their own best self-interest. Um, and a lot of it, I mean, for, for me, you know, Indie Hall is a, a place where I, one of the grandest experiments of the last couple of years has been sharing a lot of the kind of stuff that we talk about, the more um, sort of uh, systems uh, understanding of why it works with our members themselves. So when a member comes to me and says they want to do something, they want to create a new event, they want to organize something, not only am I going to say yes or I try to avoid saying no. Like for those of you who have not heard my um, my sort of oh, like do anything I can to say yes mm-hmm. mindset, it comes down to if someone wants to do something and they're already motivated and they're the one who's going to do it. So maybe taking a step back, if somebody comes to me wanting something, my first question is, is what can I do to help you do it mm-hmm. versus how like how can I do that? Right, and that's a subtle difference, but it's me opening and inviting them to be the the operator, the person who actually does the thing that they want. Some people will be like, "Oh no, no, no! I wanted you to do that, and I'm not interested in being the one who does it." But for the people who do latch on and say, "Wow, I can do that," um, I want to go out of my way to explain why I said yes, sort of help them understand in the bigger context, the bigger picture, why the thing they want to do is going to be beneficial not just to them. But to other things that are maybe not in their field of vision or they don't have a a fractal pattern in their mind to say, oh, yeah, when, uh, you know, when people come together around a project, good things generally happen. People learn things. People meet each other. That's just that's a really, really superficial example, but one that everybody gets to see. It's not hard to recreate, but just helping them be aware of why the thing they want to do actually makes sense. And when it doesn't make sense instead of saying no my approach is to say here's what it would take to be a yes sort of introduce them to the difference between what they're saying and what would fit the model so it's doing a one-two punch it's avoiding a no it's guiding them in the direction of what would be yes and through all of that just sharing this is what tends to make things work and the best part about having our members be that informed is the second, third, and so on, and so on, and so on time around, they are coming up with better ideas on their own, and they get to a point where they're more autonomous. They don't have to ask for permission. They've earned the trust to just go and, and do it, and, and it's great. There's actually um, there's a T-shirt uh, or a sign somewhere in Indy Hall that says, Alex says yes. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And, and that that's, I didn't make that sign. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this, the sign that I'm holding in the uh, photo, the, the cover for this podcast, is, is um, the community made this sign. Mm-hmm. That actually happened. That's actually true. Mm-hmm. So those are, just, those are just some of the little things that we do. And what, what's cool is I think that uh, like, like teaching people that little bit of self-awareness, it's, you know, there's something, uh, there's something sort of meditative about it, right? You know, if there's one thing that I can think of – uh, besides trust, which we're going to start talking about in a couple of minutes, that makes community members 
better members of a community. It's sort of mindfulness and uh, like a sense of awareness of who, like of what their contributions actually add up to. It's not just what are you doing, but like, why does it matter? Why does this matter to anybody other than you? And it's really hard to do that in your own head. And so being someone who can help somebody spot that and, you know, it can be a little bit weird sometimes initially to even be sharing this stuff with people, but the overwhelming response um, of helping of helping people see that is is really been more positive over and over and over than anything else. Well, and that's something that I've learned, you know, before I did communal living, I was like, I'll never live with other people. Like living with other people just seems like a ton of work. And it is because the first like year that you're living in a communal situation, and I'm not talking like on an ashram, I'm just talking about like three people in a Victorian and West Philly. Um, you really do get a sense of how your behavior affects other people in stereo in a way that you don't in a lot of other situations. Um, and the sense of like personal development and growth. I, I lived in a, in a loft in old city in Philadelphia and I used to be so uptight. Like I needed all the glasses to be white and facing a certain way. And I needed, (laughs) and I needed like the rug to be vacuumed and, and whatnot. And, and living with, People really loosened me up to show that my stuff affected other folks. Maybe this is a good transition into adulthood because what you just described sounded like the most, that sounded like a more adult version of you than the version of you that I know now, (laughs) which that's not, that's not meant to be a slight. And I know you know that, but what you just described sounds like that, that, you know, when, when you hear, I hear adult, I think people who think, you know, composed and organized and has their shit together, right? And so, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, do I think I'm an adult? I would say, based on what? Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much that's wrapped up in adulthood. Is it, do I have my shit together? Some days. <laughs> you have your shit together most days. You, you guys, listeners, Alex, uh, Alex lives in it. He has an address. He lives in a house. Uh, he shows up for work most days. Like you're, I mean, by the tr- whatever traditional metrics, you're an adult. I'm sorry to give you shit, but yes, you are. Well, yeah, I mean, at the same time, well, so, so I guess it's worth saying that, like, you know, what you see on the inside and what it, what other people <laughs> see from the outside is are not always the same thing, um, and and that's totally okay and something worth just knowing and noticing. Um, I don't know. I feel like I have my shit together more than I have in the past, right? That's an evolution. Um, I think I have a better sense of what I want now. If I look back on what me 10 years ago wanted, it's not that what I wanted then was wrong. It's that I didn't know enough to know whether or not it was right. And so it was tough to act on. It was like tough to do anything with. Whereas now I've had enough experiences. I've done enough things with other people to have a better sense of what I care about. And also, I think the other side of it is like what I don't care about. You know, what I can sort of let roll off my back and what if it goes wrong, I really just, it, I, it doesn't phase me. Hmm. That, hmm. Huh. I mean, that we were talking a little bit about like, you know, pattern recognition and, and evidence to make decisions. And the fact that you know what you want is clearer. I think that one of the, one of the traits that, we didn't talk about earlier is I have a sense of my own, or I, I check my narcissism or I'm like aware of narcissism's. Uh, Ooh, uh, yeah. Uh, and that, uh, and you know, wanting everything a certain way is, uh, is really, 
I mean, controlling behavior and narcissism uh, to the nth degree. And part of becoming an adult is say is uh, my needs are not important than the needs of everyone else in the room or the fact that like you have some narcissism and that's going to cloud your decisions. Like if you think you're good at something, chances are you're not very good at diagnosing that you're bad at something, you know, that's the Dunning-Kruger effect, that whole uh, uh, narcissism clouds you from making accurate decisions about yourself. So I think that adulthood, I feel most adult when I take a step back and say, okay, what do I not know about this situation? I get upset with myself when I feel like not an adult when I when I have an emotional reaction to something right away in that moment. Like the adult version of a temper tantrum, right? Like I I feel slighted. I feel reactive. Um but uh but yeah, awareness of my own and the and the narcissism of others too. Like uh how narcissism shakes out in different phases in life. I listen to moms brag a lot about their kids, you know, I just I'm aware of it as a thing. I think um, I did not know we were going to be talking about narcissism today. This is good. <laughs> this is good stuff. You know, one of the one of the things uh, around that that you were saying that I think a whole lot about is the what I want versus what other people want. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the exercises that I do in the workshops that Adam and I do uh, for for community builders and tumblers is. Uh, the goal, it's this think, think pair share exercise. I know that Vanessa loves think pair share exercises. But um, it, it, uh, one of the outcomes of the exercise is helping you see the alignment of your goals, what you really want, and what what you want for the community. And sort of like the what you want and what you want for other people. Um, uh, and and then also lining what what do they want? That's where the share part comes into. And realizing when those things are in line, things tend to happen a whole lot easier. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite ways to look at this is there's nothing wrong with wanting things. That's not the problem. The problem is when your wanting things takes priority over and dominates everything else. And I see this happen, God, in, in basic, I mean, where doesn't it happen? <laughs> and I mean, even in simple things, like when people, the number of people that have an idea of what their co-working space is going to look like, what their community is going to do, but that has, is not based on any reality of what the members of that community want to do. Those things are totally out of balance. Those mm-hmm. things they just don't work. And they wonder why people don't participate, why people don't show up, why people uh, don't stay involved, why people don't contribute. It's because you haven't aligned what you want with what they want. Yeah. And one of my favorite ways I heard this said is, um, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. It just so happens that what you want is in line with what I want. My priority is actually what you want. But the reason I've chosen to focus on your priority is because I know that if what you get what you want, it's going to be good for both of us. And just as a secret, the way I get Alex to do things is to say, oh, but Alex, I mentioned all your stuff in here. So that's how I, that's how I get Alex to do the things that I want. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, that's where, yeah, I, uh, when, when Vanessa's like, hey, I linked to a bunch of your stuff in this presentation or this article, that's her way of getting me to read the article because she knows that once I've satiated my narcissism by doing a command F and search for my name and see what she used, I'll go and figure out, well, what's the context and do I actually like it? Um, um, <laughs> it's true. It's very true. I love you. Um, but, but like, I, 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 I wonder about this vis-a-vis co- uh, co-working spaces and communities. And I, uh, because, you know, we talked about Eric Erickson's different, the psychologist, uh, who studies human development and came up with different phases in life. 
that there are different generative questions that we're answering at different different phases in our lives. And um, and once we move to another phase in our life, our relationship to other phases changes as well. So our sense of adolescent narcissism in adolescence is different now than when we're in our adolescence. All those all those are rel- phases are relative to each other. Um, and I was talking to Beulah about this uh, walking down the street yesterday, and I said, "So how do you feel about your adulthood now?" And he said, "Very different now that I'm a dad. You know, when I was a newly married." man, I really had a lot of ego and I wanted, you know, order for the table. Um, I chose what I was doing with my wife. And now that I'm a dad, the girls crawl all over me. Like they, they get to decide they run the show. Like I have no ego. Um, so my relationship to adulthood, as we were talking about the adulthoods, the continuum of adulthoods is different. Um, and the question that I wanted to ask you about that and about how adulthoods change and our relationship to different life stages changes is about ageism in co-working spaces or ages in online communities. Um, because if we're going to think about adulthood as adulthoods, uh, you know, you walk into a co-working space or you walk into, you, you sign up for an online community and, uh, and people might be using slang that you don't know. And uh, if you work a job in technology, chances are, chances are you're a, a younger person, um, so how do you think about ageism? How do you check it? Well, I mean, even not even just slang, but like tools and techniques yeah. and concepts. You know, mm-hmm. It's so easy to take for granted and, and to wonder, you know, are, <laughs> in the same way that, um, you know, we listen to people on TV from, you know, the, the 60s and 70s. We go, people really talked like that. Those, mm-hmm. the, the, just the language changes and it can be, be uh, interesting and difficult. Um, how do I think about it? You know, for for me, there's mindset is is a big part of this, right? So, uh, and worldview is too. Uh, I don't really think concretely about age in the same way that I don't really think as concretely about any other demographic. It's more about what do people care about, and I like looking for those fractal patterns in what people care about across all of maybe the age groups. So in uh, maybe the sort of traditional setting of a co-working space, there's a lot of people that are trying to get things done. They're trying to learn things. They're trying to grow. There's a lot of personal and professional development. And uh, for people that are later in their career, um, I think one of the the big, uh, maybe less obvious, although it seems obvious to me, or the people who are entering maybe their second career, or they're making that shift, and in the world is sort of stacked against them in terms of ageism. They say you're old, you don't, you have, you don't have the skills. It's going to be harder for you to learn the skills. I mean, I even think of my parents. Like mm-hmm. my dad is, my my dad would rather have uh, surgery, like back surgery, than work on a computer. Just, he's very very resistant to it. Um, my mom is curious and is always looking to learn, and. Uh, it took a lot for her to realize that she already had a bunch of skills and that she was even still learning. It just wasn't, it wasn't top of mind for her, but it became top of mind when she, when sort of her career up until that point was sort of ripped out from under her as many people in our parents' generation have experienced. And they're like, all right, now I have to do something new. And so we have more in common than maybe, our, our age would would signify um, and then there's also people that are at the tail end of their career or retired 
although that means a very different thing today than it did all, not all that long ago, um, I feel like there people don't actually have a period in life where they want to stop learning. The right. ones who do do it because they think that's what they're supposed to do, or in some cases because they choose it. But a lot of people that are, we have a, a, a good number of members in our community that are of retirement age or have retired. And a big part of their connection to the community is they still love to learn. And they love to stay on top of things and they love to connect with new things and be inspired. And they're, they're just as curious as anybody else. So for me, it's more of what are the common patterns across all of those sort of age brackets mm-hmm. that people might have? Curiosity. Fundamentally human, I don't think it goes away. If it does go away, it's because it was trained out of us at some other stage of our life, whether it be school or work or, or relationships that sort of told us that we're not allowed to be curious anymore. Um, a desire to help other people, a desire to share what I know. Like those are things that transcend those age blocks. And because we focus on those things anyway, if there's something that's going to make someone who is, um, is older, so say if their driver's license, right. Um, feel on the outside, I think it's more of a a visual, a visible perception. You know, they're going to come in and say, all I see here are a bunch of young people. I don't see someone like me then it's our job to help them see what they do have in common. Um, and that's a, the good thing is that's a snowball rolling downhill once you've got a few people that have bought in. So I think of one of our members, her name is Kathy Goodwin. She's retired or she's been trying. She, she's been, I think Kathy would phrase it as trying to retire. She's, <laughs> Kathy's too, Kathy's too like mentally and creatively active to actually retire. So oh, she right. has, you know, she does, um, she does some consulting work with online marketing and she volunteers with, um, you know, with, uh, with animal shelter. She cares a ton about animals. The thing that Kathy brings always to Indy Hall is her passions and an invitation for others to participate, which is a thing that I think people that are a lot younger than her struggle with. It just it's part of her DNA. But what's been cool is uh, I've seen her start to invite more of her peer group, which also, I believe, transcends age, but people that are closer to her age, that are in creative disciplines, that are artists, that are doing things in retirement to stay active. And she's saying, this is a great group of people to hang out around and be inspired by, and they'll appreciate you when you share and when you do just as much as I do. Well, and I love Kathy. Kathy has great energy. Um, and I, I remember like the uh, her coming to Indie Hall was the first moment, like when she uh, she joined, I think right after I left and I walked in and I thought to myself, I wonder how she feels being uh, sort of the first person who's um, outside this like, you know, mid twenties, more technically uh, uh, literate isn't the word I'm looking for, but pack. Um, And, uh, and I checked my narcissism in that moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, Big time. And and narcissism, like to take Kathy's story and I don't want to essentialize her in any way because I think she's great. Um, and it bumps up against the edu- educational technology community, um, such as it is the in educational technology, everyone is very interested in like the newest tool and the the funkiest thing and the most playful bit and uh, and what's edgy and what's quote unquote disruptive. But really, that's that's for other educational tinkerers. That's for other people who are hackers or digitally literate. Um, and it's been our narcissism. I think in the educational technology community to not recognize that the people who most need our help or most need these products 
are folks who are adults who have already had one career or have a few credits um, and are looking to switch careers. So uh, it's it, there's a moment in which I've, I've been checking my ageism because of my narcissism uh, and hopefully making better tools. I mean, the White House has said that the non-traditional student is now the traditional student. Someone who is, has an adult, has a child, um, has some credits from a previous institution of higher learning is now the, is now the dominant learner. And our, we need to design educational tools to help those people and bring them in as opposed to making educational communities where everyone's like, in case you missed it, or, you know, WTF, you know, all this slang, all these things that we, un- that we do that we sort of cut people out without. Well, and I think what the result is and a, a good segue into sort of topic number three of trust. I think there's, there's a million things we can uh, like unload from trust mm-hmm. and maybe the theme that we touch on today is less about trust of others and more about trust of yourself because i think it kind of starts there so mm-hmm. i think about what you just described in terms of w- what needs to shift in terms of educational tools and the example of uh an an uh, older member of a co-working space and what the difference is in the person who can walk in and hang, frankly, uh, and someone who would struggle. And I think it's that they trust themselves. This is maybe the connection between adulthood and trust is when you've got enough evidence, you've designed, you've created enough sort of fractal patterns in your mental model is that, is that you trust yourself. So I think like one of the things that makes me feel the most adult is when I, is, is confident, is my confidence. Like the things that I've come confident in making a decision about is are probably my most shining adult moments, <laughs> if, if we could qualify them that way, is because I trust myself to make a decision, even in the face of people who believe the alternative, people who tell me that I'm wrong, people that point to other examples, and I say, no, those are outliers. I have enough evidence in my understanding that the direction I'm heading is right, not just for me, but for the longer term and for the people around me, because that's what I've chosen to, to, uh, to focus on. I trust myself. And the difference between me younger and me now is I believed it then, but I was, a, I think I was a little more like, um, like zigzaggy, like, and my, my, my approach to sharing the fact that I it was, it's like different from believing in yourself because that can come across as like a cocky and loose cannon. And I think that's what I was like younger, like maybe younger adult me to simply younger me. The more adult I've become, my confidence, it's coming from a different place. It's not quite as, it, as reactive, mm. right? And it's, it's more deductive. It's more, this is what, when I, when I run what I see through my, my mental models, through my experience, I can answer more effectively, more quickly, but with a lot more confidence. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm going to disagree with you about, about 75%. That's, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe only, maybe only 50%. Um, because I think that, uh, there's a confidence Confidence is cur- encouraged by a whole lot of privilege. So, the, which uh, you know, we need to think about uh, if you've gotten messages that what you're doing is okay, what you're doing is right, um, then you're probably more likely to be confident. That's probably a lot, like you know, the going to add up to confidence, um, self confidence. I mean, failure plays a role in that too. But, and I'm also 
you know, I, there there are a lot of people who are who are very uh, confident that I've met when I was traveling around. I don't know. Does narcissism play into trust? Like, I guess is what I'm saying is, and I'm not accusing you of being narcissistic. What I'm saying is, like, are people who have a lot of self confidence? Is trust a privilege? Yeah. Um, well, is trusting yourself a privilege? I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. So to your point before about, you know, the the sort of old education systems are designed to make us not trust ourselves. We right. have to trust external factors of, right. I got a grade, I got a promotion, blah, 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 blah. And maybe con- like confidence is just too broad of a word because I don't think I'm thinking about the same kind of self-confidence you are. Uh, maybe le- let's reframe it and, and call it wisdom. Yes, I like this a lot mm-hmm. because wisdom is is the is the conglomerate and consolidation of all of the evidence that you've collected in order to be an adult in order to make the right trusting choice. That is a far better way to say what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. So and and so I mean wisdom the war even the word wisdom conjures something very different from the word confident. Is that, isn't that fair? Yeah. So, you know, for me, there's this exercise of, it's the closest thing to meditation, perhaps, that I practice is when I'm processing information, uh, sort of an intentional pause. It's almost, this is going to sound a little weird, so bear with me. Um, uh, it's almost like bullet time in the matrix. <laughs> so when something, when, when something is happening, when there's a lot of the kind of thing that you could imagine kind of freaking you out or, uh, something, somebody coming to you with a conflict or a problem or, or something to solve and your, um, your instinct is to react to it. Right. So it's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear a certain word or a phrase or an I've seen that problem before. And that's the result of a limited set of things to sort of map what you're hearing against. That's, I think, the the younger version of me was more reactive. The wiser version of me in bullet time, everything slows down. I'm hearing it and I'm mapping it against a whole lot more information and in a far less reactive way. I'm actually listening for all of the information and then making a decision. It's sort of separating the listening and the acting, which is something that I think you get a whole lot better at when with the sort of accrual of more experience that would add up to something that you're describing as wisdom. Yeah, I mean, I... I... 100% 100% agree with it. I've never thought about it as matrix time before. Um, but there is a sort of like we, sort of strange meat grinder process in which you listen to what someone is saying, but then you sort of put it through this like meat grinder of what they could possibly mean too. when you sort of look, or maybe like a, you know, a prism of some of, of like you sort of think through all the different mental models that you've heard other people say. And also like when you've heard this before and you've, and you've responded before what has worked well and what hasn't. So, you know, there's an element of practice in this too. And as, a, as someone who teaches as well, 
I can have answered the exact same question 20 times, and each time it's a little bit different because I'm taking into consideration what stuck last time, what helped the person I was working with get a more effective result. And I mean, even again, to just sort of bring this back to a common problem in coworking, is I hear people say over and over and over, people in my area don't understand coworking. And I think I said this in episode six of. Um, co-working weekly show it's not that people don't understand co-working it's that you suck at describing it and you keep <laughs> describing it the same way over and over and over and expecting something to change it's not going to work so starting to evolve that and have a better understanding of what is it that you can say that does help people understand it and use that information to mold what will get through to people. My favorite technique for that is actually talking to people who do understand co-working, who love it, find out how they describe it, and then use elements of their words, their description, their stories to describe co-working instead of saying co-working is blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that requires a lot of self-trust. Like the the ability to sort of test a message over and over and over again, uh, not to... Not to interpret that as rejection, I guess. Like the, um, I think that what you're asking someone to do then is to be profoundly vulnerable, um, and that's uh, and that's scary. Like what, talking to strangers is scary. To come across as not understood is scary. So, but what's the alternative? In this case, not being understood. Yeah. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it's. I mean, that's just it. It's. Um, I think, and that's the case in in all of these things is being willing to explore, and and knowing that it's gonna take some work. And I mean, even to the fact that, look, I run into every single day somebody asking me how to explain what I do. And the first thing I do is I look at my non-existent watch and I go, how much time do I have and how much time do they have? This is not going to be an easy conversation. But yeah. Adam, Adam freaking Tetteris, uh, and I were on a call yesterday, sort of like a pre-interview for this comedy talk show thing that we're going on where the guest before us is like a, a luchador wrestler or something. I don't, well, I have no idea what's actually happening next Friday night. It'll be something. Um, but in this pre-interview for like a, Conan O'Brien talk show thing that's happening. The moderator asked us to describe Indie Hall in two sentences. And I promptly handed that off to Adam to see what he would do. And, I, you know, of course, I, as I'm sitting here in front of you, I can't remember what he said, but it was the first time in eight years I'd ever heard Indie Hall described so succinctly in two sentences that actually encompassed all the things that matter. It takes time. It takes practice to be able... And, and I asked Adam afterwards, I said, had you said that before? And he goes, nope, <laughs> not at all. But I uh, talk about someone who trusts themselves yeah. and has earned that trust in himself in many ways. That's exactly what Adam has done. Adam spends all day, every day, talking to people about what Indie Hall is, and he watches in their eyes what sticks and what doesn't, and he adjusts. I, it's one of the things where, you know, right now, both of my teammates are... Uh, studied in improv P and perhaps one of the most valuable things that I would have never known to look for, <laughs> right? Those basic improv skills of actually connecting with the person you're talking to instead of just sh throwing words at their face and hoping something sticks. Very, very different kind of conversation. I think it's what makes Adam so good at what he does. Well, and I think that you've hit the nail on the head, like uh, vulnerability is the flip side of trust, right? Uh, you got to be okay with that. I I, um, I I struggle with this myself. 
the you know in open communities uh, member of lots of open communities, the Mozilla community, the Wikimedia community, the P2P is an open community. Um, my trust in myself, my wisdom has made me far more discerning about who I trust in open communities, which is adult, I think, um, to tie all these pieces together because... Can you give me an example of a thing you use to discern who you trust? Um, I don't think I don't think there is a there is a uh, a protocol besides the fact that I know that it takes time um, and I'll un- enthusiastically greet people in the community, but uh, but it's a it's a dance and trust is a dance and there was a time in my life when I was so idealistic about open and so really passionate about participation that I sort of blindly trusted um, and I think the reality of adulthood is that uh, trust is something that evolves. Says the girl who wants to accelerate intimacy, but um, <laughs> uh, that may be uh, the perfect place for us to wrap up today's conversation. Uh, as always, a pleasure. Let's do this again and have it not be two months between. I think we should be making the stack a monthly thing. Listeners, I hope you believe the same. Vanessa, have a wonderful rest of your day. Are you coming into Indie Hall today? Yes, I am. I love the shit out of you. I'll see you in about an hour. Awesome. Uh, you bring the microphone. I've got your Christmas present. <gasps> I think you're going to love it. Okay. Okay, love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. Ah, it feels so good to be back in the saddle with the Coworking Weekly Show. Took a little bit of time off in December, and as things got warmed up in January, decided to build up a little bit of an episode archive so we can keep these shows coming every single week. More from Vanessa in the stack, more from Adam with practical tips and a bunch of stuff that I'm really excited about that we've never gotten a chance to share before. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do before I ask you for a rating or a review was to actually read one of the reviews from uh, one of our loyal listeners. And this one's from Mike. Uh, actually, his username is uh Mike here in the USA. Mike says, yes. When describing co-working to others, I always come up short with my descriptions. This podcast has thus far done a fantastic job of extrapolating how and why we've been able to find each other and grow together. Love this review, Mike. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are listening and haven't reviewed the show yet, I would love it if you went to iTunes and did it. Made it even easier this time. You can go to coworkingweekly.com slash show, and it'll take you right to the iTunes page. Load that up, go into iTunes, leave a rating or a review, and I just might read yours on the show. Looking forward to the next episode. Talk to you soon, weeks to come. Have a great day.